1: to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.
0: Introducing Wondersweep from bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
1: Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance, of life. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal.
2: We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again.
0: Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt
2: tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Jim Wolfrey, and you're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help us all lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is rugby's Damien McGrath. Damien started his career as a teacher, but then in his words, took a gamble and moved into professional coaching. He has now coached teams across multiple countries in both rugby league and rugby union, as well as rugby sevens. He has coached club level with the Leeds Rhinos in England's Super League and was England's assistant coach at the 2000 Rugby League World Cup. He's also been the head coach of Germany, Samoa, Canada and Spain Rugby Sevens teams, winning many international tournaments along the way. He's the author of three books on rugby skills coaching and is an associate at Ashridge Business College. Damien is a humble and engaging coach who through a smile and a story, is able to normalize the stresses of life and competition and in his words, leave a legacy of self-belief, which helps people reach their potential. His experience coaching across cultures also makes him very good at communicating in short, succinct manner that cuts straight to the heart of the matter. There was a lot of hard-won wisdom in this interview, but the parts that stayed with me afterwards were that you shouldn't listen to the people in the stands or you'll end up sitting next to them. How? If you don't live your stated values as a coach, the team will think you are inauthentic and as a result, you will lose their trust. The importance of taking the next empty seat when the team is eating together and not going and sit on a table with all of your friends. And that everybody who's successful is self-reflective. In this interview, he mentions his brother Anthony, who is also a great coach and who we will be interviewing next week. This was a really engaging conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. The Great Coaches Podcast. So Damien
1: McGrath, good
2: afternoon, and welcome
1: to The Great Coaches Podcast. Good afternoon.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: We're very excited to talk not just about rugby with you today, but more about your global perspective on coaching, which we'll get into a minute, but it's very broad. But maybe just something simple to start with. Where are you in the world today, and what have you been up to so far?
0: I mean in Heidelberg in, in southwest Germany, stuck strong word, but you know, circumstances have, have helped me to enjoy Germany a little bit more than I expected. I was hoping to get home because it's only an hour's flight from Frankfurt was close by. But I've been here, I think the last time I was home was August. So I'm looking forward to uh, at some point getting back to the family. It's a Sunday afternoon, it's wet and miserable outside, but I'm looking forward to talking about coaching.
1: We appreciate you taking time from your wet and miserable afternoon to talk to us. So we'll try to make it entertaining for you. Damien, I usually start by asking our guests, what do they think the great coaches do differently? But you've said, and I'm going to quote you on this one, there's no such thing as a great coach because I think there's far too much to learn. So I'm going to reframe my question a little bit because you've worked with some very, very good coaches, if not great people yeah. like Sir Clive Woodward, there's Simon Amor, there's Graham Murray, the Australian, of course. So maybe I'll reframe my question and ask you, what do you think separates the good coaches from the rest?
0: I'll give you, just before I answer that, the reason I said it is that I think the biggest disappointment of my coaching career is that it's now coming towards its end and I'm just starting to get to grips with how much I don't know and it's always a voyage of exploration. So... I think for any coach, you, you never get to that point where you think you know everything and there's always something around the corner, a great article that piques your interest, something you see that just sparks some thought in your mind that wants you to take you in a different direction. So that's that was why I said that. All the names you mentioned are, are, are fantastic coaches, but the one guy who I'll talk about is a guy called Paul Daly, who I don't know if you remember that famous old John Cleese show, Forty Towers. There was a a Spanish waiter called Manuel in that. If you're looking to visualise him in your mind, Paul was Manuel. Thick black hair, big black moustache, only small in stature. But what guy, he coached me as a player at Batley, which was a second division rugby league team in England. And he taught me some valuable lessons. First thing he did was make me aware of how important enthusiasm was because he was one of those people who could light up a room. Rugby league and which in theory was professional back then was no different in the eighties when I played from from any other sport at the time. We trained by running around in circles to get fit and we only saw a ball usually in a couple of sessions before we played. It was a drudge to a to a degree. You turned up knowing that you were going to get flogged if you'd lost, and it wasn't quite the the scientific approach that we expect from our coaches now, but Paul had that ability to tell stories and to infuse you. And you know what? If he just said to me and to any of the players, I think at the time, I want you to go stand on the roof of that house over there. It'll be a great job for the team. You'd do it because you believed him in entirely. He just had that way with it. He talked about sacrifice as well. He, he had no formal education. He was a, a miner from in the in the pits from Featherston. I think he was one of thirteen children. He had a twin brother and. He told all the stories, you know, he wore the hand-me-downs and his twin brother got the better ones first before him because he was about four minutes older. But we were mourning one evening about it was raining hard and it was just another drudgy night. And he he told a great story about, you know, you don't realise what sacrifices. And and I know he was over-egging the omelette, but he told about how he, he did a shift down the mines and then got a bus from Featherstone to Leeds, which was about an hour Got the train from Leeds to Halifax, which was another hour then. Ran from the train station to Thrumhall, which was Halifax from Billings Ground. They were one of the famous teams at the time. Played in the championship final for Halifax. They won. He got man of the match. He got fish and chips on the train on the way home. Did all the return journey the same way and got up to work in the, the mines the next day. He said, now that's sacrifice. Said, that's, everybody had a way of telling it. And he just put enthusiasm into everything he did. And he made training fun. even that. Boring, sometimes monotonous stuff. He could make you enjoy being there. But the thing that then marked him out for me was he had that. He was old school in so much of what he did. He went on the 1988 as a supporter to that followed Great Britain to play Australia and the, the old British Lions the rugby league version of tours. And he met some people at Parramatta, um, and obviously Australia in rugby league terms was light years ahead in Great Britain and it reflected on the scores on the field at the time but he came back and his thinking on training changed completely and we started to do things which fit the strengths of our very poor team and it was the first time I'd ever seen anybody adapt something to fit the players and he explained why he was doing it and what we were doing it for and again I if we're talking about whatever made you want to be a coach, he just opened my eyes to things. He made me think about things in a different way. Didn't tell it to me directly, but just watching him in action. And what I admired about him most was someone who'd been in the game for so long and was schooled in a really different way of, of doing things. Was prepared to change and to take his own way of coaching and the game forward. And it, in a small way, it was successful relative to where we were to what we became. And I just thought that was such a fantastic thing. And he was a guy who who never gets recognised, and never gets mentioned. And when he retired from coaching, he was the guy that, as I finished playing, I became player coach for the reserves at at Batley. He recommended me to Doug Lawton, who was the head coach of Leeds, who are now Leeds Rhinos, who were the blue chip club in British Rugby League. He recommended me to Doug to be his assistant coach. I ended up heading up the academy, but that was another story, but... It was Paul who got me that opening and it was Paul who came to work at Leeds as a helper in the academy, even though he had such a great story background. He wasn't bothered. He just liked being involved. And when he retired from everything, he became the head of Headingley Experience, where he used to take snakes of schoolchildren round the facility. Because obviously Headingley has the cricket ground, you know, the famous Test cricket ground and the Rugby League. And I think until very recently he was still doing it, he must be nearly 80 now, if, if not close. But just everything about him made me think that is a great coach, just a great people person and always looking for what can he could do to make it better.
1: I wonder whether then it was him that ignited this passion in you for change because you said that he was prepared to change. And, of course, your career has been marked by change. If I've got this right, you've coached in the UK, Germany, Samoa, Canada and Spain. Those are just the national countries you've coached. You've traveled all around the world coaching those teams in various locations. What has this taught you about the cultural similarities and differences within teams?
0: Michael Palin, you know, the, the old Monty Python guy, he did a famous program on traveling around the world on a train. He wrote something, the more you travel, the more you realize your experience of life is just a way of living. And everybody has a there's a different way of living everywhere you go. And that that's something that's I've found fascinating. Even here in Germany, which if you walked onto the street and you're you know, with your eyes closed, then open them, the people look like they do in the UK. Most of Germany looks like the UK in various parts, but there are differences in life that that you find so hard sometimes to come across. Or you go to Samoa where it's a completely different way of life. And as long as you get on board with everybody's way of living, and then it's an enjoyable way to to live your life. Just to do things in a different way, to accept things because of the place you're in, is a fascinating thing.
1: Yeah, no, I can understand. And what about within teams? Yeah. How have you seen these cultural differences play themselves out, if at all? Maybe they are just the same well, wherever you go. I
0: mean, even even when I left rugby league to go to rugby union, was a huge cultural change because. I did that back at the end of the 1990s, beginning of the 2000s, when Rugby Union had just gone professional. Now the two codes are very close together, whereas then it was a a massive difference. Some of the clubs had gone professional and were treating their players like nine to five employees, trying to fill the day as you would a business. So it was markedly different. And I came from Rugby League, which had a a professional, if if you want to call it that outlook, and you were paid to win and were much more advanced. To try and see life through their lens and how they did, and be careful how you made changes, how you suggested changes, and that taught me a great lesson. Because when I went to Spain, they were a football nation, ostensibly, and we had two-hour siestas every afternoon. We didn't eat till 9:30, 10 p.m. at night. All those things were, were a little different. Spain had a. It would be no good playing a power game with a, the smaller not Latin America, but the, you know the Spanish had a very different approach to, to ball sports. It was much more hand-eye coordinated, driven as opposed to power-driven. So that was a, a lesson in how to put across your points from their perspective, never mind the fact that most of them couldn't speak English. So you had to think about what you said and, and not just how you say it, because the nuances of the language are different. And whilst the guy who, who was translating for you might repeat it verbatim, the feeling or, or the, the point you're trying to put across or conveying what you say was was different. So that was one of the sort of light bulb moments for me in Spain where I had to stop and, and really think about what it was I wanted to get across and be much more concise in, in what I said.
1: I want to pick up on this idea of feeling actually because you're the author of three books and there's also lots of good articles around. So I was able to get some great quotes to really help me prepare for this. There's one that I really liked actually, when you said that surely is culture, it's how you make people feel. So what I wanted to ask you was how have the greatest cultures that you've experienced made you feel?
0: Well, I think whoever's driving a team or an organisation, they're the culture because they're the people who set the standards. If they're inclusive and if they can make an environment welcoming, then everybody wants to be part of it. And I can still remember my team, I'm 60 now, and I can still remember my teachers from primary school because three of them were just great storytellers, to so read books and do little voices. and I can still see their faces and remember their names because of how they made me feel. And their lessons were, were just that way. And my life's full of people who made me, I remember them from how they make me feel. And connection's a great thing. And I, I think connection in, as a leader coach, teacher, whatever you want, however you want to describe them. Having connection with people is just so important. We always talk about the great, and the names you mentioned right at the beginning, the great sporting coaches. They're very, very good at what they do, but what allows them to move on is how they connect with people and how they connect to what they want to sell to them with what the people want to buy into. And Connections are an amazing thing. I've been part of some really good ones. It depends on the people you have with you, I think. In Canada, I very much, I let the players and the other staff drive the program. Once I got, I'd sold my message and all I did was steer. Come here to Germany, it's the other way around. It's a very different cultural approach to sport. They're very efficient and they like to do things by the book. I have to drive a lot of what we do to get things going in the right direction. You can get results, I think, as long as you, as the leader, are on board hundred percent. I always think coaches are like actors. If you and I were going to a West End show and we just got a matinee ticket, we'd still expect to be entertained in the same way that someone went on Saturday night to the main show of the week. And every time I go to a training session or a meeting, I realize that I have to perform as though it's that once a week thing. You have to radiate enthusiasm. You've got to be sure that you know what you're talking about, that you've taken us in the right direction. And the person at the core of every organization has to do that. They take things forward. Great cultures can be built, but as soon as I think some key people disappear, they can crumble just as easily. You say great cultures can
1: be built. Could you share an example of the best example of one where you've seen it transformed from something that wasn't yeah. great into something that was great?
0: Yeah, I can, and that's an easy one for me because it comes back to my the man I regard as the greatest coach, and that's Graham Murray, an Australian, who, and I've told this story many times, but I was assistant coach at Leeds Rhinos in 1997, I think it was, and the club had new into Super League, and Dean Bell, the famous Kiwi player, had come in as head coach, I'd been assistant. I'd had great success with, with the academy, but I was fairly new to being a, having a senior position in senior rugby. So I was assistant coach. Dean decided to step aside. He wanted to go work in the academy system. So Leeds employed Graham Murray, who had a big success around the NRL clubs in Australia. And I didn't know what to expect. I'd never met him. And I received a phone call from him. And we're going back to the 90s now, before emails and such like were really the accepted form of, of how to do things. And we talked for, for half an hour on the phone and he gave me a list of things he liked me to do. And one of them was, could I get a list of names of all the staff and players and put it in a letter or a fax? I think it meant fax and... and but also get a name of their wives, husband or partners and, and send that across. So I did that. To, you know, um, Leeds was a, was a big organisation, much akin to a soccer club, a commercial department and finally was, it ran the cricket stadium as well. So it was a big thing. So I did that and sent it over to Graham. When he arrived, we went to pick him up from the airport and came in and he was laughing, He always laughing, always. And he reminded me of Paul Daly and I, his enthusiasm was easy to see, and but he he made me feel as though I'd known him for years, which was a skill in itself. We went into the main office, and he came across, and people stood up to come to meet him as as the chief exec took him round, and he went over to Julie in the shop, who was the head of the Leeds Rhino shop. Then Gary Hetherington, the chief exec, said, "Oh, but Graham, Mrs. Uh, Julie, she's the head. Julie. How are you? How's Paul?" Well, you could see, you know, shoulders went back, and oh, he knows me. He knows who I am. And, how is he? You know. I, he did that with about four or five different people at different times in the next hour. So, and it was an old circus trick, I suppose, you know, a bit of a memory thing. But just by showing an interest in people and those, everybody in different parts of the organisation thought, he knows me and he knows something about me. And even within that first hour, he had people in the palm of his hand. And I thought, what, what an amazing thing to do. But then when he got with the players who were, uh, we had some very talented players a bit, I don't know if you follow football, but bit like Manchester United are now. Lots of star names, but not really producing the goods. And he sat them down and he he sold them what he wanted to do and why he wanted to do it. And he gave them some little rules like you travel everywhere with us, which seem obvious now, but and when we were eating at lunch times or when we were traveling, you must take up the next vacant chair, not go and sit on the table with your own little friends. And, we, and he just, lots of little things like that. And he, just needed that to get people together. It changed the way we played ever so slightly, but it made everybody feel as though they were contributing to the team. And we it had little groups of it didn't call it didn't have a leadership group as much as a group of influencers. He got the key people. He just got them together and spoke to them, took them for a coffee and which now I think we'd say, Well, that's nothing new, but I'm going back 20, you know, 22 years now when nothing like that was done. And I watched, I watched over the next six months, things changed, beyond belief. we had a couple of decent wins, as we should have done with the players we had, but we ended up going on to the first ever grand final. We won the cup at the, the last ever final at the old Wembley Stadium, the Rugby League Challenge Cup. We, you know, we won that in 99. And it was just a, it was a transformation from from a struggling team with a storied history that looked like it would never come back. And it, it was the foundation of what Leeds Rhinos have become over the last 20 years, which has been world champions and, and had some great success. But what Graham did and how he did it was, was fascinating to watch him to be part of.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm here with Professor Eric Knight the executive dean of the Macquarie Business School, and he's just stepped out of the classroom. So, Eric, what kind of leadership skills do you help people develop here at the business school? I think the measure of a great team is whether a team is having the kinds of conversations they need to have in the organisation. And so when we try to develop the leaders of those teams, we want them not only to know how to identify the issues that the team needs to talk about, but also how to have the conversation so that people feel comfortable and focused on the key issues that matter. Thanks, Eric. The master's programs at the Macquarie Business School, designed to empower you, challenge you, and transform the way you think. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Great story, Damien. Thank you for sharing it. I hadn't heard you say that one before, so thank you. We haven't met before today, so I'm going to ask this next question, but I could be wrong (laughs) because it comes from just researching and preparing, but it seems that One of the recurring themes, elements of your life is like curiosity. I know that you said you were a school teacher and you, quote, took a gamble to go into full-time coaching. And then you've taken jobs all around the world. You've travelled extensively with those teams in sevens tournaments. You've got an ongoing interest in learning and developing. And you've actually also said, quote, I was always fascinated by what it was that made the best players the best. And that curiosity and my teaching background made the step into coaching, an obvious one. So I was, wanted to build on this whole idea of curiosity and values and to sort of ask you, what are the values that have traveled with you on that journey that are just central to who you are as a coach?
0: I think values are very important. And the difference between my coaching career and my playing career, if you could call it a career, but I was a sports fanatic. I, I just, I loved cricket, I loved football, I loved rugby. I, I'd rather play than do anything else, but I just wanted to play I just to digress a little bit, my younger brother, Anthony, he's the head coach at Essex, who were the county champions in, in cricket in England. He played for England as a test cricketer. He was a, played for Yorkshire and captain for umpteen for years. I saw him as a four-year-old boy tie a cricket ball onto the washing line in our garden and just monotonously play forward defensive strokes. He worked to become successful at what he you know, ultimately became. Way beyond anything... I ever did. I just liked to play. And I realised as I got a little bit older and couldn't understand why everybody was better than me, that what he did was the way to do it, that you needed to sacrifice and focus hard and work on all facets of the game. And all great players, I began, as I looked at it closer, they all had that drive to be better. I find that sometimes that's the difference between there's lots of talented people that don't make it but they're not willing to do it. You know the old trick I use this for the players, about, where you say, put your right hand in the air, the air as high as you can, and they all put their hands up, and then you say, no, no put it higher, and they can all push a little bit higher. And I tried to explain to them, that's the difference. You know, I said, do it the best you can, and yet when I asked you again, you could push it, but I had to ask you. The great players, the people who are successful at most things, are already got it to the highest point, because they're already pushing to be the best they can be that's what I understood as I began to finish playing and, and think about coaching. and It was about pushing people to, to get the best, you know, to realise their potential. And that's, that's what took me forward. And I found that, you know, honesty is lots of values. People say, what, what are your values? And they'll tell you what they are, but they, they can tell you what they are, but they don't necessarily live them. And, and yet, if you don't, you cannot, as a coach, leader, manager, move forward. If you're honest with people, they will trust you. And they'll trust you because they think you're an authentic person. One of my close friends was a a comedian on a love boat when we were in our early 20s back in the day. And he tells a great story. He started, he just wanted to work on cruise ships. And he he started as the man that held the monkey while the guy took a photo. Then he became the photographer. Then he became the MC on the show. And he ended up being the comedian. But it wasn't who he was, but he, he tells a great story how... This girl he was cracking jokes to and chasing on the ship. Seven o'clock the next morning, there was a hammering on his door. She came with her mother to say, Skip, this is my mum, be funny. And it wasn't him, he wasn't, that wasn't who he was. But to be a coach, you have to be that. You have to be authentic. If It's not just an act and then you suddenly not that. You have to be it all the time. Honesty, not just in what you say, but in who you are is important. And you have to show people that you care because if, if you don't care, they won't care. And you, you've got to do, and on that, you know, there's, there's one thing I feel guilty about now, and it's a small thing, but it's it bugged me for ages, is when I was with Canada on one of the trips, we had business class flights from Dubai back to Seattle, which is a long, long way. And that was like, a, with Emirates as well, one of the best airlines. So it was 14 hours of doing that is better than 14 hours set in the economy. As a young coach growing up, you know, I always got the... If any business class flights came up, I, I always missed out because the senior people got them. I was like, I can't wait to be a, a senior coach or whatever one day and I'll, I'll get the business class seats. But then you start to realise, but that's not what a leader does. You make sure everybody else is all right before you. One of the staff had... He was he was unwell. He was he was feeling sick and, and nauseous and he was struggling with cramps and things. And I thought that he'd already... Someone had given him a seat and I didn't give up my seat for him. And he had the worst trip of all time. And that's killed me for for no reason. I don't know if it's Catholic guilt or whatever, but those things I think are important. You've got to show people you care. You've got to put them before you, then they'll care about what they do for you. So values are really important. I just think you have to... It underpins everything you do because then you can set the culture then you can be that person that creates the environment that p- people want to be part of
1: so you say that's bugging you and it's i could understand looking back why it would have but when you left that canada team it's my understanding that the players gave you something that you considered to be very special and i wondered whether you could tell us about what they gave you
0: they wrote me a reference i mean which i suppose as a coach is the ultimate thing isn't it you know they they wrote me a two page reference the entire team on why if another organization should hire me it was probably the most precious coaching thing in sport I've ever got because I won't read it to you because I, I spoke to my wife this morning because I, I, I found I found a copy of it on my laptop and I said I can't share this because it just it is personal and but it but it was it was everything I'd want to be just about dedication and putting other people first and, and creating a culture and, and bringing people together and all the things I've just talked about. So that's why it's precious to me. I mean, I could never share it, could never send it to a prospective employer, but it's just nice to know sometimes. It gives you that warmth, you know, maybe I, what I did was was right and maybe all the things I did were worth it. It's
1: a lovely so, gift. It's a lovely uh, memento to have from your time in Canada. And maybe if there is a fourth book, elements of it could be reproduced.
0: Well, your questions are... Um, Sort of sparked an interest and being laid up here, I've started to, I, I, to think about coaching from a, a sort of a leadership point of view more and more. And I don't think, I think as, as coaches, we should do that. We should, you should document what you do all the time. I know everybody who's successful is a self reflector or, or should be. But I don't think sometimes we document the things we go through and how it leads to change and how we manage that change and how we sort of you have to be fluid and how you move forward. It's a worthwhile task.
1: I think with the – I mean, we've just gone through the biggest reset probably in hundreds of years. And One of the things that fascinates me is the way that I think coaches are generally quite selfless people and there's a degree of – I think they have higher than average resilience – the average person in the street and so i think those two elements are in short supply and that's why i think coaches are very worth interviewing and listening to hence the podcast (laughs) there is one i'm not going to say controversial but there was one really interesting element of your story that i wanted to ask you about because it it seemed a little at odds with the other things i'd heard from other coaches and uh, it's about goal setting and you were saying, you're not a big fan of it. You think that every day should be about being the best you could be. And I thought it was a real, well, real strange I, I because
0: without a goal, <laughs> where are you heading? Well, yeah, maybe you do have a goal because if, let's say here in Germany, our goal is to get onto the world series and our goal is to qualify for the Olympics. So you get up with a, re, a reason to be, everybody has that raison d'etre. You you know where you're going as a, as a professional coach, because usually you're in a competition by goals, I mean, it's, I, I'm sometimes against those short-term goals you know, we will we'll win every game at home or we will we'll win three out of the next four because what if you lose the first two or what if you lose your first home game the whole season's out? I, I just feel sometimes they can put an added pressure on players. I'm not saying that, that, that I might be wrong. You know, everybody has, it's my, only my opinion. But I think if you should aim to be the best you can be every day. As I talked to you about the coach who gets up and he's like a performer. Yes, you have to be the best you can be. And I think if you, work to that limit if you're that guy that puts his hand up to the highest possible point and pushes it up then you can achieve the process is is so important outcomes will usually take care of themselves and i think that's what i was trying to say that rather than signposting everything have the end goal in mind but then be the best you can be and it's amazing what can happen
1: no, I think it is. Okay, so I won't drill too deeply on that thing because it sounds like you do have goals, just not ones that put too much pressure on the team. Yeah,
0: I think, uh, yeah, maybe I, was, I wasn't I was being as clear as I should be. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah.
1: You know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the art of feedback, or maybe it isn't an art, maybe the, the style of giving feedback because – in the corporate world, you have these anonymous 360 degree surveys where you give people feedback. And I'm not sure that the anonymous element of that is particularly good. And you're in a position as a coach where you've got to give players feedback all the time, particularly about selection. So I wanted to ask you, are there any ways that you found more effective than others in giving feedback or negative news?
0: Oh, it's the hardest thing of all to do because it's the least enjoyable. Everybody wants to give good news. And usually when you're you're giving negative news. It's someone has worked, particularly when someone's worked very hard and they've, given, they've been the best they can be, but you just don't feel it's right for the team. And then I think you have to go back to your values about honesty and caring and being reliable in that what you do is what you say. And I always make it clear to all the players right at the start, at some point I have to make a decision that I can't really put a finger on, but I feel it's best for the team. It's never personal. There's those things, you know, people look at them as sandwiches, don't they? You know, the Mm. the traditional sandwiches, the Mm. good news, bad news, good news, and people who, who don't put any good news in at all and feel you should just come out and say it. But I feel you should give them a chance to speak. You tell them what your decision is. You try and give them a reason why, even though they might not be able to see it. They understand that you've got a reason, but then allow them to speak because I feel that's much better than them going away and festering and, having something on the mind, or even encouraging them to come and speak to you a little bit later if they've thought about something. And I try wherever possible to come back to that person sometime in, in the next few hours or, or the next day, just to speak to them and ask them how they're feeling. Not everybody accepts it. It's giving them it without a reason. If you can tell them why, even if they don't accept it, at least they know you're doing it for a reason, not because it's anything personal, or you think they're rubbish. I always try and give them it in a team context and, and where I feel Paul is better than Damien for this, because I think he can do this in this game. At least then they can see you, you've got a reasoned yeah, uh, yeah. Reasoned answer.
1: No, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense, I think. And then when you do it in a team environment, two players can support each other, I guess, as well, when there is yeah. some
0: negatives. And I think that's where influencers, um, and I think that's a great thing about having the right people, senior people within the Team. and even using the staff you, because again staff are very important the people who are closest to you when you're not there they are you and they've got to project the same message and but they can also not be seen as a threat the head coach is always the person that no one wants to upset and what they'll say to you will be completely different what they might relax and say to the snc or the physio or the analysts, and they, I always say to the staff, it doesn't matter how the head coach finds out as long as the head coach finds out, which is an old Graham Murray thing. He always got his info from what players spoke about, you know, in, in what they saw as a less formal environment. When you
1: were a younger coach, you were given a wonderful piece of advice. I couldn't yeah. find the name of the coach who gave it to you actually, but I just love it. Was Paul loved Daly, it. it was Paul Daly. Oh, yeah. So he yeah. said, don't, don't listen to the people in the stands or you'll end up sat next to them, which I think is fantastic. But I imagine it's easier said than done. What top tips do you have for other people who are trying to put that piece of advice into practice?
0: Well, it's not that you shouldn't listen to people, but you should listen to the right people. I'll give you a great example about the difference between an opinion and a decision was going back to the Graham Murray years. Graham had to go back to Australia because his mum died, sadly. And for four games, I was elevated to the big seat. So the first game was on Sky Sports. like It was live on Sky Sports. There were 20,000 people in heading We were playing Sheffield Eagles, a team who were near the bottom of the league and we were expected to, to win handsomely. All I'd done was move one seat across. So from sitting my seat in the stand where normally I went and sat in Graham's seat, one seat across. We were losing 18-0 after 15 minutes. There was starting to get uneasy in the crowd, and I, I just caught out the corner of my eye on the big screen that the cameras were on me, and suddenly I felt the weight of the world on my shoulder, and I suddenly understood then the difference between giving an opinion, which I used to do to Graham, and suddenly having to make a decision: do I make a substitution? Do I change the way we play? Do we? That was where I was. Trying, you know, there were people shouting all sorts of things, and when I went down the stairs at halftime, we got the game back. You know, you got to do this, and you got to do that, and. You got to you got to live and fall by your own thoughts, and that moment brought it home to me really clearly what the difference between opinions and decisions were. And when you're in a decision-making position, you've got to be careful who you listen to. Bob Fulton, the the famous Australian rugby league coach, one of the all-time greats as a player, And you probably won't know about. In the, in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, as a young teacher. I worked as the liaison officer for the Australian Rugby League, for the Kangaroos when they toured. And I got to become good friends with Bob Fulton. And, and it was the time of all the big stars in Australian Rugby League, Meninga and Clyde and Data, all the greats. Days before camera phones and all those things and I, I had an amazing five or six weeks living in the team hotel. But one of the things I enjoyed the most was the evenings where we'd sit with the, with the staff and they'd talk about their experiences and Bob Fulton said to me he said I know you're a young coach he said let me tell you now don't surround yourself with your friends and yes men get the best coaches you can the best staff you can he said because you can't rely on other people you don't want yes men you want people who are going to challenge you you want people who are going to make you think about things he said you don't want people who are either going to agree with you or say what their friends down the pub are telling them. That's where that thought and feeling came from about getting people, yeah, I, I have mentors, if you want to call out people whose, whose opinions I trust who I know have had similar experience who don't tell me things, but they'll suggest things if I ask. Paul Daly being one of them, I often saw him back in day and he'd, he'd ask me how I was doing, but he'd never tell me anything unless I said, what do you think about this? And he'd give me an opinion on something. And those are the people I think you, you've got to listen to or certainly weigh up their opinions alongside yours.
1: It's funny you say that, Damien, because... I think there's this common thread with between coaches that they don't want the limelight. And so unless they're asked for advice, it's really hard to to get them to speak. Hence why Jim and I have to pester our coaches to try to get them to come and talk to us. So we're very appreciative of you taking your time to share that story with us. But could I just build on that one a little bit actually? Because
0: social media is all of experts.
1: Um, yeah. That's why we've got to stay away from it. Yeah,
0: sorry did that break. I'll just saying. Yeah, the people like who you look on social media, the great coaches, I mean, the people who are really doing things at the top level, you you don't see them giving opinions or things on social media, but there are thousands of people who tell you what Eddie Jones should be doing this afternoon with England against France, what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer should have done last night when Manchester United played. There are lots of those, and they're all experts, but they're just giving an opinion. They don't know the facts. So, Damien, can
1: I build on this idea of failure, actually, sure or Challenge, actually, is probably a better word. How do you think the most experienced coaches deal with failure or challenge in such a way that it becomes an energy that propels them forward? Is there something they do? Is there a way they reframe it in their mind or they reframe it for the team that creates this energy?
0: I think so. I think how you deal with defeat is far more important than how you deal with winning because if you project it as the end of the world and becomes a blame culture, then – It's very hard to get that back. I've always been of the mindset, you know, you never lose, you learn. And that even when things have gone badly, I'll always try and a bit like the feedback we talked about. You're feeding back to a losing team. You can't just say, you're rubbish, you're rubbish. That's not good. You have to find something out of the remnants of defeat that points a way forward. My best ever for that, my personal one was with Samoa against Fiji in Paris. We won the World Series leg in Paris in 2016 we beat Fiji in the final Fiji went on to win the gold medal in the Olympics and they had all their big star names from all over the world they were in our group to try and qualify for the knockouts we came second to them but they absolutely smashed us 42-0 I think it was or 46-0 which in a game of sevens is a big score we weren't just second we we weren't even on the same field we got absolutely hammered but we came out the next day and beat South Africa, beat Argentina and, and we were against Fiji in the final. So from the ashes, how do you fashion something that's going to take you into a competitive game? And the Samoan way is very different, going back to cultural things. Brian Lima, the famous player, was, was assistant coach and he was old school. He wanted to, I think he would have had them flogged if he could. He was, he was all about blame and finger pointing and I was expecting a, a message from the Prime Minister to say it wasn't good enough and I knew that that wouldn't take us anywhere forward. And so I used the video from that with all the good things we did, but what could have happened where we made mistakes, it was all our mistakes that allowed them to win, not that they were just brilliant. It gave the players a little bit of self belief. And as we'd have it, we beat them in the final, but we were losing 26 0 at half time and came back to win 28, 26 or something. But it was the same thing yeah, at half time in a split second, I had to do the same sort of engineering of self-belief. They, they aren't that good. It wasn't them, it was us. I think, again, the other great coaches I've seen do this use it as, a, as an energy to propel the team forward. It's not them, it's us. It, they're not that much better than us. It's just we're not doing this right and that right. It's all about us, not them. And it's not about your rubbish and... Get off! You'll never play for this club again. Which I've heard other coaches say. I've been in dress rooms where you've seen people just assassinated, and you think, well, you know, is is that really going to help going forward? We we've got to play again next week as well, and I just think that use every defeat as a lesson to move forward. And the, and the best coaches, I think, do that. They they see it as a challenge to to move on to the next one.
1: Damien, I know you're coaching Germany, and I listening to you and watching you move in some of those YouTube videos. I think you've got many years still left as a coach. But if I was to gather up all your ex-players and and ask them what the legacy they think you've left is, what do you think they'd say?
0: So uh, you sent that question through to me and I thought about it. I thought, well, what is it? I, what I'd like them to say is he's such a funny guy and his jokes hit the mark every time and we'll never forget them. But usually everybody, their eyes roll and moan as soon as I start telling a story or telling a joke. So I asked my wife and I asked one of the coaches I worked with and they said self-belief. My strength is to put self-belief into people or into teams that I I can move the next bit. And which I think... Just talking now, I think it's probably true that I never feel as though anybody's better than us, and and I, I always try and give that across. That my enthusiasm for the players I'm working with at the time is unshaken, and I, I believe in them 100%. I, I'm a can-do type of person. I, I like to point out what people can do. Not it's easy to point out people's faults, but I love to highlight what is they're good at, and then we work on other things to just to make that thing even better so I think yeah I'd say self-belief I, I would I would agree with it making that a, a priority because then people can reach their potential which is which I think is a great thing you see people achieve what what they need to be
1: Damien McGrath it's been wonderful speaking to you this afternoon thank you so much for sharing some key messages and stories from your journey I know it's not over yet and I will look forward to that fourth book being published one day and maybe there will be a bit in there from the Canada reference that they wrote for you
0: Thank you. Well, it's been a real pleasure to speak. Uh, I hope I answered
2: the questions um, in a way you want to. The Great
1: Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. You have been listening to our discussion with rugby coach Damien McGrath. The key highlights for me were his belief that culture is how you make people feel, the great example he shared of showing athletes how they can reach higher than they initially think is possible, and his view on how you deal with defeat being much more important than how you deal with winning, because if you project it as the end of the world, it becomes a blame culture, and that's very hard to take back. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. In our next episode, we will be speaking to Damien's brother, the cricket coach Anthony McGrath.
0: Ultimately, the captain needs to still perform, whether a batter or a bowler, so their main job is to perform of course, but are they at a stage in their career where mentally they can deal with the rigors of the captain what we've just been talking about and still perform so i think that's how we look to select captains
1: and just before we go coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight and so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share then we would love to hear from you you can contact us using the details in the show
0: notes